0: Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Joining us today is Stephen Adelschein, who is a professor of psychiatry, pediatrics, and family and community medicine, and is also the director for the Center for Rural and Community Behavioral Health at the University of New Mexico Department of Psychiatry in Albuquerque. Thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. The data shows that about 3% of people who develop schizophrenia show early signs of the disorder while still in their childhood. This being so, over the last couple years, there has been increased work and interest with the hope that if we can identify early signs of mental illness, then perhaps we can prevent it or at least reduce its intensity. Can we say that it's like cancer or diabetes, that if we find it early enough, then we have a better chance of preventing it or at least managing it better? I'm interested in your thoughts about this.
1: Well, it's a really great question. And let me start off by saying, I think what's clear is that not only for psychotic illnesses, but for many health conditions, we now know that 50% of mental health conditions have their onset prior to the age of 14 in our young people. And we as yet have not really developed systems and the models by which we're able to identify young people early in the process with their illnesses. If you interview older adults who have developed, whether it's schizophrenia or other serious mental health conditions, many of them can go back and tell you about their symptom onset when they were 6 or 8 or 10 or 12 years old but then their difficulty understanding what happened to them, but also difficulty in knowing how to communicate it to others, how to ask for help. And often I think because of the blame we often attach to parents in terms of their children's problems, it becomes very hard even when parents are aware there's a problem to know exactly how to or whether or not to get help because of the stigma issues that often go with it.
0: And this has sometimes been called playing the blameless game. We're not blaming parents if their kids have problems. We need to face it. It's not always comfortable, but we need to face it and do something about it. Well,
1: I think that's really true. And one of the things that certainly we're finding is that if you look at some of the literature that's been done internationally, looking at how these illnesses are often expressed, even when there's genetic risk, that the more we can do to lower stress levels in families, the more we can do to support families and young people around getting help for these issues, the better young people will do in terms of being successful in school, at work and in the relationships with other people.
0: What types of symptoms might a teacher or a parent see in an elementary school child that should give them cause to worry? Well,
1: sometimes what we see are kids who may be becoming even a little bit more disorganized in their communication, in how they maybe talk to other kids, perhaps even in their writing style. Perhaps students that were very involved with others and interactive might start to isolate a little bit more at school as well as possibly at home. They might start to shy away when they didn't do that so much before. They may at times seem to have problems concentrating and focusing more directly on things that are happening in the classroom, whereas that maybe wasn't a previous issue for them as well. So part of what we're looking for are really some changes that might involve some sense of withdrawal, Maybe a little bit of confusion in terms of communication and thinking, sometimes even increased irritability or frustration can also be signs that maybe there's a change and that something new and and of concern could be going
0: on. One of the more popular and perhaps too quick to come to a diagnosis these days is attention deficit disorder. And if a kid is having problems in school, it seems to jump into that area very, very quickly. You're talking about something very different. You're talking about an early onset of psychosis. There's a different flavor here.
1: Well, there potentially is. And, you know, when we look at the current diagnostic criteria for attention deficit disorder, it also includes being based on the onset of symptoms often, but before the age of six years old. You now, at times those symptoms may have been missed, but generally we're talking about maybe a change that is starting a little later in people that maybe haven't had these kinds of symptoms previously, where there hasn't been necessarily trouble during transitions or trouble sitting still in a chair or ongoing problems with focus of attention, but really seeing this as a change that's maybe taking place a little bit later. In schools, we're generally pretty good at also recognizing sometimes the child that maybe is increasing in their interaction or having broader uh, anger focus or more trouble sitting still with more externalizing kinds of behaviors. You know, we often don't do as well with recognizing the kids that are becoming more withdrawn, more avoidant, more isolated, suddenly becoming irritable when they haven't been before. So this really is a different situation.
0: I think one of the issues also is that we tend to think of psychoses as more of a teenage disease and older, but not a disease of kids, not disease of young children. For
1: the most part, I think that's still true. You know, I think that psychotic illnesses are certainly less common in younger children and teenagers, but in fact, they do occur. And whether you're looking at some of those symptoms related to a depressive disorder or a bipolar disorder, or even one of those disorders that may lead to having a schizophrenia-like illness later on, we can certainly see those changes and cross a spectrum of what we consider sort of psychotic or what we often focus on as prodromal kinds of symptoms, which are really those symptoms at the point before that young person really has sort of pretty clearly lost touch with reality in a pretty tightly defined way.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about some of the statistics that have come out of the studies that have looked at the effectiveness of early and timely interventions? The numbers are quite uh, encouraging.
1: Well, when you look at some of the international studies that have been done on young people with prodromal kinds of symptoms, one of the things that's tricky about this is a lot of the effort is focused on identifying those young people when their symptoms might be in an early phase. And then some groups get interventions and some groups get more supportive, watchful waiting. I think what's clear is that for the general population, when you're sort of watching and seeing how things go, probably 30% of young people go on to develop a psychotic illness. When you look at the international literature for more intensive intervention for young people with prodromal or early psychotic symptoms, Really, 1 in 10, actually, as opposed to the 30%, so like 10% seem to move on to a more severe illness. So the hope is is that we're really able to drop that percent to some degree in terms of young people who are converting to a, a more serious psychiatric disorder.
0: And that leads us to my wanting you to discuss what you've called the early program. But I have another question before I go into that area. I'm curious about what it's like in New Mexico. You have, I would assume, a very multifaceted cultural population that you have to deal with. Is there a major difference between the Indians and the non-Indians and other folks?
1: Well, certainly there are major cultural variations within the many populations that we have in our state. We are a minority majority state. And so when you put together our populations of Hispanic community members and Native American community members together, that outnumbers the traditional Anglo or Caucasian community members in our state. But even within our Hispanic and in our Native American communities, there are also huge variations. We have 22 different tribes in New Mexico, 19 Pueblo tribes, two different Apache tribes, and the Navajo Nation that all have their own cultures and beliefs and often different languages. There are multiple differences within those communities. We have traditional Hispanic communities for the families that have come to New Mexico, frankly, going as far back as Coronado's expeditions in the 1500s. And then we have people that have come across the border from Mexico more recently, so we have very different Spanish-speaking communities that even speak very different kinds of Spanish within our state as well. So, you know, we really have some wide cultural variations, and with that comes different interpretations of what family means different interpretations of how we interpret illness and so it really causes a great deal of cultural variability around both understanding of mental health conditions and the choices people make around treatment.
0: It sociologically or psychosocially a, a very rich part of the country in terms of understanding the variances of cultural impacts on, on mental illness.
1: Well, it's, it's really true. And one of the things that certainly complicates the work that we're doing here is the fact that most of the screening tools or research-based documents that we use have not really been validated with the variety of populations that we work with here. they often, in many cases, they've been validated on the East Coast generally with white or Caucasian or black communities, and really many of them have not been validated to be used effectively with Hispanic or Native American communities. So that's just one issue right up front when we're using screening tools or assessment tools or research-based tools. The validation isn't even
0: often there. So that offers you a challenge, and and certainly complicates your work. But it certainly is not an impossible challenge. Let's go on, if you would please. Tell us about your early program. I'm very intrigued by the entire process.
1: We were very fortunate to be one of five replication sites, actually, of, of a program that started in Portland, Maine, called the Peer Project, and. They have been doing this work for many years and their efforts through funding from NIMH and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and SAMHSA and local funding led to an early intervention model that's really been based on a lot of work done all over the world. And their data really was so successful early on that Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, one of their early funders, really wanted to look at whether or not a broader replication in other communities would bring about the same result. So we were fortunately able to become a replication site for the peer program And really, our intervention involves a couple of components, and and really, when you think about these in terms of any kind of public health approach to mental health, I think the framework is is very similar. We, first of all, do a great deal of community outreach that's quite targeted, and the outreach is to, as you were suggesting, give people a sense of the warning signs, early symptoms, what to do for help, but also just generally educate communities around mental health issues, break down stigma and help communities acknowledge that there are many young people and family members that have mental health issues, that mental health conditions are common, that they are treatable, and then also to give information particularly about these kinds of early prodromal symptoms and the whole continuum of early psychotic symptoms to more severe mental illness. Our outreach is really targeted to really two groups, to schools and community colleges and universities as one group that sees young people most of the day, and then also to primary care providers who are often the place where a family member might go or a patient might go when they're first wondering if there's a problem. So we do very targeted outreach that focuses on those groups, and we've done a lot of education around our state and locally where our our program really has taken off to those partners. So the outreach piece has been critical. Then because this is a treatment research effort, when young people call or potentially come in, we do very intensive screening process and go through a research base of multiple questions and questionnaires to really try to get a sense for where that young person might be on a spectrum of a psychotic process or not. So then once we have a good sense for that, someone may qualify to be part of our treatment program. If not, they may be in a group that basically is our low-risk group where we might check in with them on a monthly basis to see how they're doing. We might connect them to other services in the community and then be of service potentially that way. When people come into our treatment group, there are a couple of things that happen. We continue our in-depth assessment of what's going on with that young person as well as with their family, and our group for this particular research program has been 12 to 25 years old, and that's been part of the whole national study and the whole national replication. We do some initial counseling and family support. We will have a psychiatric assessment, and then based on that, work with the family in a couple of areas. We may or may not suggest or recommend medication for that young person, and the individual and family are free to make decisions around that however they choose. We offer individual support as well for that young person and their family. And then we provide, uh, as one of our core components, multi-family group process, which is when we bring five or six young people in our program and their families together in a meeting every other week. That's a very problem-focused, solution-focused process where we have members of the group raise particular issues they want to address, and then the whole group works together to help solve that issue. Wonderful. So the multifamily group has been a critical process that everyone commits to. We also provide supported education and supported employment. We'll work with that young person and family to see if they have needs they have around school that we need to help them figure out how to address or if they're working help make connections to potential employment or some of those other components as well. We have a critical partnership with occupational therapy, which is part of our program, and all of the people in our project receive an OT assessment, and then some guidance and support from an occupational therapy perspective around how to be successful with a whole set of activities that might range from social skills to school. To just organizational management that's also been an important part of our program as well.
0: As I listen to you go down this list it's a it's a wonderful program but I'm better understanding the words that apply to the term early. Early assessment and resource linkage for youth and hence early, but resource linkage is so critical here and I'm sitting here going yes that is wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that.
1: And I think One of the things that's been important for us is that we really try to work with that young person and family to help them make the choices they want to make in terms of community connection and support in that effort. And people are in our program. We also support them with whatever other therapists they've been working with, other resources they've been accessing as well, and just try to make sure that our communication and partnership are solid in this effort. But again, this is still a treatment research program. One of the things that's been interesting is the interest in this model is developed internationally, but now particularly in the United States. One of the questions is, well, how do we roll this out into a clinical kind of model, and while the data really isn't back yet on all these sites, there is a sense that this kind of a concept, you know, at a very simple level makes sense, and that it can't hurt to do early identification intervention, like you mentioned way back in your, la- in your first question, like for cancer or for diabetes prevention, that for all of these illnesses, Early intervention and early detection can only be helpful.
0: Absolutely. Let's give the website of your program. It's www. Well, they're all www. Early program. One word. E a r l y p r o g r a m dot org. I think people should take a quick look at it and then study it and learn about it and copy it if they can or take some of the information to their local groups or doctors and so on to kind of get an idea of how one should address these issues with children. It sounds as if it's very successful. Is it going to continue or, unfortunately, is this going to fall victim to funding cuts and that sort of thing and a good idea isn't going to persist? What's your future?
1: Well, one of the things that we're very excited about is that because this has been a research program... It's been very rigidly tied to the research model. We're excited because we're going to be starting a clinic for young people as a clinical program where we can do more in-depth assessment and link young people and families to services. And that'll be starting up really in the next month. So we're very excited to be able to continue this as a clinical model with additional assessment over time.
0: I should also make mention that the larger model that you talked about was something called the Early Detection and Intervention for the Prevention of Psychosis Program, many initials, EDIPPP, and it's funded by the Robert Wood Johnson's Foundation. And they, have a website which is easy to remember as, as well. It's Change My Mind, one word, change my mind.org. But I would like people to refer to yours initially, and again, it's earlyprogram.org. Dr. Edelsheim is a professor from the University of New Mexico, and as you heard, his work has been very instrumental in moving us into the right direction with early intervention, because when we can get to these problems early enough, we we genuinely can intervene in a way that we can make young peoples have a, a better life. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.